Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. One of my favorite scenes in the movie The Social Network is when the Winklevoss twins are talking to a friend about Mark Zuckerberg, who had run off with their idea for the Facebook. In the scene, the friend comments that he would love to hire the Sopranos to, quote, beat the shit out of him with a hammer. The him, of course, being Mark Zuckerberg. To which Tyler Winklevoss responds, we can do it ourselves. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. Yes, my guest this week is actually two guests, and you guessed it, it's Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. They're going to talk to me today about that movie, The Social Network, what it's like to see yourselves as a character on The Simpsons, of course, those days back at Harvard with Mark Zuckerberg, rowing on an Olympic team, and much, much more. But before we get to all that, we're going to start our conversation with the main passion of these two right now, which is actually Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So I'd like to welcome them both to the show. So thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Um, uh, I figure we'll jump right in um, and uh, and talk about something that I know that you're both incredibly interested in, something that I'm fascinated with, um, which is the current state of uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all that stuff. Can you give us like a little bit of a lay of the land of where things are right now? Because I feel like I can't keep up. Yeah, sometimes we feel the same way. Uh, this is Cameron. <laughs> Um, yeah, the last couple of months have um, been pretty exciting um, time for the space of uh, cryptocurrency or digital assets, um, namely Bitcoin, obviously being the oldest one that uh, first um, was launched in 2009, um, but has really started to hit more and more mainstream adoption um, and certainly been covered in the media quite a bit over the past couple of years. Um, and then Ether is is a newer entrant into the space. Um, if Bitcoin is sort of a digital gold, Ether is sort of a, a digital oil um, that kind of is creating a network of smart contracts. Um, and both of these two together have seen huge growth over the past couple of months um, and a lot of coverage in the media. So how, how did you both get into digital currencies was it just like you were walking down the street one day and you thought hey that could be something that's interesting what was the the premise that 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 got you both into it so this is tyler um it, it was almost as serendipitous as that we were actually on vacation in the summer of 2012 in ibiza of all places and a um a stranger came up to us who actually had some friend, mutual friends in common. He recognized us and he said, oh, do you know so-and-so? You know, I know them. And, and they sort of knew we had that friend in common. We started talking um, and he said, hey, hey, have you ever thought of digital currency and, and Bitcoin, stuff like that? And we had just finished, um, retired from our athletic career of 15 years and we were just getting back into the entrepreneur startup game. So we hadn't. And uh, next thing you know, we were back in the States in in August and talking with a bunch of Bitcoiners. And so we understood the pain point immediately because we actually, our accommodation overseas, um, 
we had to pay for it. Um, apparently, not enough money was was wired at, at, at the moment. And um, the pain point of getting money from um, the states to to Ibiza um, when you're there for only a week um, was obviously, you know, clearly evident to us at the time. And when we started um, digging into it, we realized, hey, you know, like it's kind of embarrassing. We just accept money as it is because it's something that's familiar. It's something we grew up with. And we're both economics majors at Harvard. And we'd studied a fair amount of, you know, economics and knew a little bit about money, but in the history of money. But when you stop to stop to think about it, you we recognize that payments really don't work in this in the modern information age the way they should. Money doesn't really work the way it should. Um, you know, if if we can, if money is just information at the end of the day, and um, we can send an email, um, you know, for pretty much free and instant. Uh, anytime, then why shouldn't our money work the way our email does um, and work for the internet? And you sort of look looking deeper into this idea that well, the forms of money that were were used to prior to digital currency were all invented before the internet itself. So they never contemplated working on the internet. So credit cards, ACH, Fedwire, it's it's around uh, it's a square peg in a round hole trying to make them work on on the internet um, and then Bitcoin comes along and you recognize it's actually built by the same type of engineers and computer scientists who built the internet itself and that's why it works so well and so I think that when we started digging there um, it kind of we kind of recognized whoa there's a lot a lot of potential here so one of the things that I find the most com- there's two things I find really confusing and I'm fascinated by the whole topic and 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 everything um, is First of all, it seems like every single day there's like a new cryptocurrency. And I'm like, well, which one am I supposed to pay attention to? Um, so that's the, the first thing. The second thing is, um, so I just, I wrote a book called American Kingpin. It was about the Silk Road and the Dread Pirate Roberts. And of course, the Silk Road drug website where you could buy and ever, sell on anything using Bitcoin. And one of the people who read an early draft of the book was my mother-in-law. And she couldn't understand Bitcoin for the life of her. I mean, I remember we... My wife and I were, you know, thought we'd explained it to her about how, you know, you exchange your money, your dollars for Bitcoin, this, that, and the other. And then she finally, she came in the house and she said, okay, I totally get it. But what does a Bitcoin actually look like? And hmm. I, we just were like, how can you, you know, how can you explain to most people, I mean, I do technology stuff for a living and it's, it's hard for me to get my head around some of this stuff. Like, how do you explain these cryptocurrencies to most people? if you want it to become a standard form of currency across the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and it's challenging, right? There's so many different facets. I, this is Cameron here. Um, when, when, we first, when I first got back to the States from the trip in Ibiza that Tyler's referencing, I sat down and started digging into Bitcoin and reading about it. And I said, Tyler, you got to come over here. This is either like the next biggest thing and the implications are enormous or complete bullshit. It's a totally binary outcome. Um, but basically, we started digging into it and we started buying it and feeling it. You know, obviously, there's nothing to feel in Bitcoin because it doesn't actually exist in the f- physical form. Um, but there's, there's so many different facets of these things. But I think what helps us in understanding it um, is is making a real world analog. So Bitcoin, in our p- view, is 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 a digital gold. And when you start thinking of gold and why people buy gold, 
Um, and what they like about gold, they like the scarcity, they like the portability, um, the fungibility, the divisibility, um, and and so on. And there's about nine key characters, characteristics of gold, which is generally used as a hedge against inflation and, and uh, disaster insurance and just an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And if you line Bitcoin up next to gold, it actually equals or betters gold in all of those nine categories. It's more divisible than gold. It's clearly more um, portable than gold. You can move it. We can basically send, it's like sending information. We can send it um, like an email all around the world very easily. So that helps me at least um, conceptualize like what is what is Bitcoin doing? Um, how, how do I sort of build a mental framework for this type of asset? And that's sort of the the sort of the larger question of what is money? Is it shells? Is it a piece of paper? Is it a precious metal? Um, or is it just information? Or is it a system that everyone buys into that gives it value? Obviously, we have U.S. dollars, but I think what you're talking about is a little bit more of like the usability of it. Um, most people the understandability don't... of it too. It's okay. It's, I so, a dollar bill. I understand that I can take this thing and I can hand it to someone. And I and I guess the question is the larger question is if you know for it to become more than just a bunch of people trading bitcoins on the internet for it to actually become a a thing that my mother in law uses or that my dad uses or whatever. How do you? What's going to happen? What needs to happen for that to happen? Right. So, the way to understand Bitcoin, as Cameron said, is is if you can understand why gold would be important to have in your investment portfolio or some other precious metal. That is, those same reasons are why um, Bitcoin is has has a place there, or how how to understand Bitcoin. Um, all of our money is digital. Even the cap. Most people don't carry around cash or pay people in cash. They even they use either some sort of app like Venmo or PayPal, or they actually wire ACH. The majority of money moves in a digital manner, and most people accept when they go to their bank account that they pull up their online banking and they see a ledger entry or or a number. They don't actually look at a vault with dollar bills of their wealth. So I think people um, expect Bitcoin to be somehow different, or they they already accept the fact that. Money in briefcases is in the movies, and that's like a hundred-year-old thing. And we're already in a digital world with, with money. Um, if you want to dive deep into like the guts of Bitcoin, how it works, well, most people don't understand how the internet works. They don't understand what the protocols that their email works on, like SMTP um, or IMAP. But it does work, and it's easier to. It's one of those things that's easier to experience than it is to necessarily explain. So we can sort of go down the the crypto rabbit hole of of why it works, but I think that um, your mother in law is probably waiting for the day when um, she's actually using it without even knowing she's using it. Um, so that's sort of like the the layer application layer um, to be developed on top of it. Just like the internet was a pretty sort of janky, kludgy experience in the early '90s, only really tech, techno ex, technological experts were we're using the internet or even email. And then when things like Gmail came along or even AOL before that, it sort of put the skin over it um, that made it easy and usable. And that's definitely something that Bitcoin and all cryptocurrency, even Ethereum has its work cut out. But I think that before you get the Googles and the Facebooks of the sort of the native native things that um, 
couldn't happen without the internet, you first need, um, you know, you need to run like broadband connections and routers and all of the the sort of infrastructure. And that's what Gemini is. That's the the digital asset exchange that Cameron and I have been building. It's to really build a a uh, the infrastructure, sort of the gateway or on ramps into this world uh, in a user friendly way um, for both individuals and institutions. And then once we get the on ramps um, easy to use, then it becomes easier to once you're in that world to start to use the application there. But there isn't really a mainstream um, use case or application in any of these cryptocurrencies yet that I would say to your mother-in-law that, hey, you need to use this. You can't live without it. But yeah. all of the stage and the stage and all the groundwork and building blocks are being um, set and, and laid right now. Um, so I think in the next five years, we're going to see an explosion of what people like to respond, like to call as like native, a native Bitcoin app, a native Ethereum app, something that um, couldn't be contemplated or actually couldn't work outside of these technologies. And, and just to further add to that point, um, you know, if you talk to the younger younger folks, they they don't want any hardware money. They don't they don't think in the physical. They think, um, you know, if you think of the way we consume music growing up as physical CDs or records, um, and it's now all MP3s, and then it went even one step further, and it's literally streaming from the cloud. Um, the younger generation doesn't really think about physical money, and quite frankly, I don't I think would be. You know, they don't have an issue wrapping their head around. And they've that. been living in digital, whether it's Nintendo points or um, you know World of Warcraft points. They live with digital currency. Maybe they're, maybe their centralized digital currency is different than um, than an actual decentralized crypto. But um, the idea of physical money and cash that'll be like owning vinyl records um, one day. <laughs> we'll probably be telling our grandkids. They'll be like, you know, granddad, what was that weird thing you, you, that those pieces of plastic and paper that you carried around? What was that all about? Just like probably driving a car will be a skill that you relearn uh, or, or, or to, no, like your kids won't even be learning. Um, so I think yeah. that um, it, it's really funny when you talk to millennials about this stuff. They totally get it. They track immediately. They, they're actually more comfortable than than our generation. And when you talk to um, older, older folks, you just that, you know, as you get older, you get more sort of calcified, crystallized in your ways, and you're just less open to to the things that are new. So, okay, uh, last question on Bitcoin, and then we'll move along to some other topics. Um, what I, I own one Bitcoin. Um, I'm very proud of myself. Uh, um, should I should I sell it now, or should I wait? Do you think it's going to eventually be worth tens of thousands of dollars a single Bitcoin, or or, or where do you think it's going? This is the million dollar question. Um, I will say that we are not qualified to give investment advice. Um, <laughs> with that said, um, you know we we definitely get asked this question a lot, and and I I generally um, the way I kind of like to think like to think about this question is it really depends on your time horizon. If you are a buy and hold type person who believes that you know you're going to hold that Bitcoin and you have no problem holding it for the next ten years, um, I think that you know we are li- we are just at the first inning of this entire space it is it is a thing it's it's not an if it's a when um and it's growing rapidly i think in the last um year we've seen um, many tens of billions of dollars of market cap being added to the ecosystem as a whole um so we think you know we're obviously very long-term bulls on the entire sector um so if your time horizon is long enough um it's probably 
a good idea to hold. Um, but our, our whole thesis is that Bitcoin, Bitcoin is gold 2.0. It's better at being gold than gold. And so if that's the case, look at the market cap of Bitcoin and look at the market cap of gold. Bitcoin's about a $50 billion market cap and gold is at least in the, uh, you know, the trillions. So there's, if, if our thesis is correct, um, then there's still a huge appreciation to, to be had if something comes along and is a better, you know, defeats Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency or people say, you know, don't, don't actually believe buy into that thesis long term, then, um, you know, it can go to zero. So you can argue very credibly um, that that Bitcoin's very undervalued right now. Um, but at the same time, there is definitely um, all sorts of risks, um, you know, that that are there. Um, and and that's sort of like every individual's decision that we make. But Cam- like Cameron said, um, we're long term bulls and, and holders. Um, okay, good good advice, even though it's not investment advice. Um, <clears throat> okay, so uh, switching gears a little bit, you, you mentioned earlier that you um, that you both uh, retired from your, um, uh, was it rowing career? Is that right? That's right. Um, um, do, do you both, so I'm a twin, I have a twin sister, and we couldn't literally be more polar opposite human beings. Um, <laughs> and it seems like everything you guys do, you guys do together. Is that the case? I mean, is it, are you both interested in Bitcoin simultaneously? Or is it that you bring it to each other? Are you both you know, do you both decide at the same time, like, let's, let's quit rowing? Does one of you say, hey, I want to keep rowing for a couple more years? Like, how, how, how do you guys make these decisions together? It's a great question. I think we, we've always been a really good team. Um, even as kids growing up, we used to build Legos together and have different strengths and different weaknesses. Um, we always played sports together. We had um, a similar, like our larger group of friends was the same, but sometimes um, we'd have slightly different um, groups of friends. And I think that we've just really enjoyed being a team as athletes. Um, so I think that we kind of got into the rowing thing together. And um, we, we'd we spent 15 years in the sport. Uh, we rode in the 2008 Olympics as the men's uh, U.S. pair. Came in sixth place. And so we, I think a lot of it was doing it together as a team. Um, so it kind of made sense that we bowed out at the same time, although there wasn't some hard line rule that, you know, we had to, we didn't make that, you know, agreement with each other. And I think but that with, go with ahead. like other things too, like entrepreneurial pursuits and things like that, do you always decide to do these things together as a team or are there times that you say, oh, I'm going to go off and do this on my own or something like that? Well, we definitely divide and conquer and we definitely have different opinions we don't always ratify each other just because we're twins cameron's actually a lefty and i'm a righty so we're mirror image twins so i guess technically we use different sides of our brains um i think overall our our goals are the same but definitely um there are certain you know even day-to-day things in building uh, gemini or certain investments where we might not one might be more excited than the other, or even when we're listening to the radio, um, you know, I might say, oh, that song's really annoying. Karen's like, oh, I kind of like it. Um, so I think that's why we were able to be a team for a long time, um, and even to this day, is because we we don't always agree. Um, I think we agree on the big things and the core values, but um, overall, we're very different people. I know that sounds weird because on paper, we're like identical. 
Um, but our friends will will sort of say like, you guys are so different. And we certainly look at each other and we don't see the same person. But I get how like the outside perception is that like, you know, you guys do, do everything together. And I think a lot of it, what's helped us probably for the past, you know, 35 years is that we, we don't really compete against each other. We really compete together um, and we pick goals and pick things that we we really want to um, try and try and hit or achieve and then kind of work together. And in rowing, let's say Tyler pulled a PR on on what's called an ergometer, the erg test. That's like the rowing the rowing machine. Wait, can you so pull the what, sorry? Yeah, so um, the rowing machine. I, I don't so, speak rowing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, I'll break it down real quick. So basically, there, right. you row, um, but in the winter and off season, you train on um, what's called ergometers or erg machines or short. You know, sometimes just we call it the erg for short. Or it's it's a rowing machine you see in the gym. Exactly. That's, um, it. It's basically like a medieval torture device. Um, incredibly painful, um, but it gets you really fit. And you do tests on on those machines to sort of um, test your limits. And if one of us you know, hits uh, PR or breaks a certain um, time, you know, I think the other is sort of saying, oh, well, I guess I can do that too. And we kind right. of I sort of say like, well, if Cameron did that, well, we're identical twins, then I can do that too. Cool. Like, and I'm, I'm like his biggest cheerleader because I sort of live vicariously through that effort. Um, but another funny sort of fact or tidbit is that, so we both played um, classical piano for 12 years as, as kids into um, the end of high school. And then we sort of, stop playing musical instruments for a while and then Cameron got into the guitar and I've more recently got back into piano and he has a huge passion for um guitar and and shredding and Van Halen and this kind of stuff and you know um whammy bars and everything I don't quite share that that passion I think Cameron you had a guitar lesson yesterday with a teacher over Skype and it was like a whammy bar expert um so Cameron's gone like really like deep into guitar um and and all that stuff and i don't quite share that energy for that but i do um feel it a lot more for piano i I, i'd prefer to um you know work on my piano skills and maybe i'll get to guitar one day but um you know overall we're very passionate about music but we've taken slightly different instruments in past to to get better at and uh, uh, and so i think that's kind of like I think that very could, much sums uh, up how we're very alike, but also different at the same time. You guys should start a piano rock guitar band, the the Winklevoss brothers. That as soon as you know we're done with this crypto stuff <laughs> um, and Bitcoin, that'll be our next chapter, I'm what, sure. Did you guys always get along as kids, or did you fight? We we always did. Um, every sibling relationship has its moments, and you sort of like work. But like for us, it's always it was like, you know, a disagreement for a couple of minutes or, you know, at most. And I think that was the key thing is that we never thought anything was so worth it to hold a grudge or be against each other for like a week at a time or even a day. Um, and and so I think we it's it's a skill that you have to learn and work on. We definitely today we 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 are a lot um we sort of roll with things even much better than we did five years ago and um, and even before that. So it's something that it would be like really weird and hard to believe if two people who spend as much time in as high pressure environments with as much um, as high goals as, as we did didn't um, 
didn't every once in a while get at each other's you know throats or, or on each other's nerves. Um, but the key is to recognize that uh, there's no fight or there's no issue that's worth um, worth um, fighting for. There's no hill that's worth you know dying on so much that um, you you know no longer work together or, or forget the fact that you guys are each other's best friends that you share like the same you know genetic code and um, nobody has your back more than that other person and that's a huge asset that sort of knowing that your interests are being watched out as much uh, by you as by someone else is a great asset whether you're going into sports or business and I and I try and tell this to other siblings or other families it's like it's something you have if you cultivate and grow. It's not going to be easy day one. Like, oh, we just came out of the womb and we were like awesome, you know, uh, well-oiled teammates. Uh, we had to work at that. And I think, you know, everyone should to some degree because um, the other thing is really, it's sad. You know, you see these destructive competitions and rivalries between um, siblings or family members. And it's like, for over what? Like, it's not even important and life's too short. If you guys work together, you would push each other so much uh, further forward, and it would be a lot of fun at the same time. And so, um, you know, we've we've always done that, and it's worked out pretty well so far. So you guys are both, um, you know, a part of pop culture. Um, uh, you, of course, were in the Social Network movie, or well, there was a version of you played in the Social Network movie. Um, you, there were, you guys were. Uh, on the Simpsons, um, what does it feel like to to see that or to be part of that? To to see a version of yourself on the Simpsons or something like that. It's definitely a surreal feeling. I mean, I think when we first, uh, I'd say probably two or three years into the whole Facebook um, lawsuit, that's when the media started paying attention, um, and like overnight it just changed and it became um, a, a household interest, um, quite frankly, global, global for that matter. So there's definitely surreal aspects of it. Um, but we try to have fun and, and um, roll with it. You know, there's a lot of noise um, out there um, at times, but we've just sort of kept our heads down. And we were, we were rowing the whole time through that on the national team. So we were sort of living a very monastic lifestyle um doing doing this thing um and there was this huge sort of parallel universe of a story and interest and um and then the movie so it was kind of interesting there's quite a disconnected time from reality and what our day-to-day was and sort of how this whole media story was was unfolding and i think probably what partly we, we couldn't let it we couldn't let it change our lives because if we knew what we had to do as athletes and that was get up at six in the morning, train for a couple of hours, eat, sleep, uh, get up, train a couple more hours, eat, and then go to bed before 10 o'clock and repeat that six days a week. Um, 50 weeks. A so year. we couldn't be running red carpets and living that whole lifestyle um, to, to a certain extent. So we had to actively make sure it didn't change anything for us. Um, and in terms of, so like Cameron said, it's kind of like this, this parallel universe of what our lives actually really were at that time and what was this narrative going on in, in pop culture. And um, there was a there was like absolutely huge disconnect. I mean, we were devoting ourselves to, um, to moving a boat, you know, a little bit further each stroke. 
um, you know, that was our whole, you know, life. And um, the whole world was talking about something that happened over the span of three months, uh, like five years before at that time. So it was kind of like this really interesting irony. Um, but at the same time, it's probably easier you for an outsider to perceive what it is than for us. Um, you know, when you're in it, when you're in the moment, it's always hard to almost see like what it is as opposed to, you know, for someone who's outside looking, looking at it. And I, I'm sure I feel the same way when I look at other people who are in pop culture. Um, and so I think that, you know, it didn't, sure, sometimes we walk down the street and, and someone will recognize us, but the, it's always funny when someone, every other person they stop us and they say, they don't say, oh, were you guys like portrayed in that movie or the social network? It's, are you guys twins? And they don't even, they're not even thinking <laughs> yeah. about us for the yeah, social network. Yeah, they probably network. put it on like social media and the friend points it out to them like an hour later. Yeah, hey, that, do you know who that was? What do you mean? That's happened before too. And and growing up as, as twins, you're kind of, you stick out a little bit um, because there's two of you and we were tall. And you know, people have been stopping us like all our whole lives and being like, oh, are you twins? Like who's, old? and then the next question is always who's older. And then the question after that is, um, you must get asked that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, never, you're the first person. Yeah. So whether this all happened or not, we're always going to be like asked, are you guys yeah. twins? Like, oh, that's so cool. How old are you? Or oh, I, who's older? And so, um, and, you know, look, some people could have used this to launch a certain their, their career in a certain way, you know, become the next big reality TV star, um, you know, be a pop culture person and sell pop culture goods. We didn't want to take that path. Um, we've certainly, um, you know, it's we have somewhat of a brand. We built a brand as investors and entrepreneurs, but um, we took a much different path and we understand from our athletic career that um all of this stuff is it's great and all but it doesn't really help you build your company it doesn't help you uh row your boat faster so take it for what it is and understand that it's a lot of it's noise um it's it's pretty uh intangible and it's not directly really related to you um building something great or doing something um great and so we don't we know what it's worth and it's really not worth that much to our day to day and leading our team at Gemini of, you know, now 40 people and growing very quickly. Um, and so we don't ever confuse it for, um, anything it's not. Got it. So, um, I, I'm sure you hate these questions, but I have to ask them because the listeners would hate me if I didn't. Um, we'll just jump through a few questions about the movie and Facebook and whatnot. Um, um, did you what did you see the movie before it became before it was out did you do you where were you guys when you watched it what did you think of it what did you think to see yourself portrayed in those jokes and things like that was that difficult was it funny <laughs> was it it, 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 it was so we previewed yeah. it i think we saw it um probably previewed it at sony pre-release and then saw yeah, it i think right. we sent went to uh the premiere in new york which was at um uh lincoln center at, yeah lincoln center um, at the New York Film Festival in September. Um, and at that point, the the buzz had sort of started building around the movie. And I think that um, Sony realized that they had a real, um, not only like a, a popular movie, but a critically acclaimed movie on their hands. Um, and, and, you know, look, we enjoyed the film. We think it's a, I think it's a great piece of uh, art. And uh, it, 
it um, probably should have won Best Picture, um, but that's a different story. Um, but it look, al- almost did. Yeah, it, almost, it, yeah, it got certainly very close and won a lot of Oscars for uh, um, other parts, such as the screenplay and whatnot. But um, look, we 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 enjoyed it. I think we're probably the only people portrayed in it that actually went to to see it. Um, and I think that the characters are certainly they're not us. Um, I think most of our friends who have seen it, they're like, yeah, it's not really you guys, but um, there's a story that's trying to be told and and they chose to tell it in a certain way. And it certainly created a lot of like discourse and discussion around the whole, not only our particular issue, but I think technology in general, which I think is, is positive. But most importantly, it just made uh, entrepreneurship and startups exciting. And when we were at Harvard and we were there from 2000 to 2004, Computer science was pretty much a dead major. Nobody took it. Uh, nobody talked about it. it. Was just not except popular. like losers like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> well, those are your <laughs> words. Um, but Joking. I, I actually wish um, I wish I had more time to do it. I, I would have studied comp sci, but I didn't think I could do it well with all of the rigor of rowing practices. But um, and then we we went back to Harvard in about 2012 and talked to some students there. And computer science was the most popular um, major. And we sort of joke hmm. that, you know, the, the best recruiter for naval aviation was the movie Top Gun. And it wasn't anything else or any other, like, of those ads you see on TV. And we sort of joke that, like, the social network was, like, the Top Gun for, for startups and, and entrepreneurship. So I think there was a lot of good that, that came out of it. Like Cameron said... We don't. We didn't look at the movie and say, "Oh my gosh, that's up there. Uh, that's us up there on the screen." Um, you got to come with the framework of this is a piece of entertainment. It's a movie. Um, y- if you come in thinking like you're going to see a documentary or that it's trying to be a documentary, um, then you've got it all wrong. And so we really accepted yeah. it for what the medium what it was, and never never um, like asked it to do more than just be interesting kind of like inspired by a real set of events but um a great story that leaves people um uh, that when people leave the theater the conversation has just begun you can the brilliance of it is that you can take anyone's side you can take our side you t- can take mark's side you can take eduardo's side you can see everybody's point of view it's very like um like rashomon the akira kurosaro uh video uh, film where um, there's there's a there's a crime and you sort of see truth from different points of view and you realize that that um, you know truth and reality is very much your your perception of it and everyone's got a little bit different one so um, we kind of came in with that lens to it um, and never got to took it too seriously or got so much like oh my gosh this happened or this didn't because that's not what it's trying to be. Did you? Um, I look at Facebook today, and it's two point two five billion people, which is a quarter of the planet. Um, did you ever imagine, in any way, shape, or form, that even like when you you know after the movie or anything like that, that it would ever be this big and impactful? If I say yes, you probably won't believe me. <laughs> um, but did look, did you? I mean, did you? Was that a thought? When well, we, I don't think anyone. So. I don't think any any one of us would have credibly said there in the beginning, you know, when we was myself, Cameron, Divya, and Mark sitting in Kirkland dining room, um, the conversation wasn't like this could be 
you know, 2.5 billion users. I don't think the Google guys sat around and said, I don't think Sergey and Larry were like, you know, Google could become what it is today. Um, you're focused on making something big in your local, you know, whether it's your university or in your sphere of academia or whatever. Um, and then it can have scalability beyond that. But we didn't walk into a boathouse on day one and say, oh, I'm going to be an Olympian. I know exactly, that's exactly what I'm going to do. In 10 years, I'll be at the starting line in Beijing Olympics. At least me personally, you walk in, you say, that's interesting. I wonder what it takes to get better at it. I wonder if I can be a good high school rower. And then you do that and you go to college and you're like, I wonder if I have what it takes to become a, a, um, uh, a varsity college athlete. And then when you get to graduation year, you say, I wonder if I can keep going and I, I feel like I can keep getting better. Maybe I should give throw my hat into the ring and, and try the national team and, and go for the Olympics. So, I mean, on day one, you can fantasize, like you know the Olympics is, I guess, a possibility um, you know, down the road for someone who succeeds for many years. Um, but you don't, I, you know, you don't, you have to focus on the stroke in front of you. Um, that's what's important and getting better each day. And then all of a sudden you look back and all of a sudden it was that kid, the high school kid who walked into a boathouse is on the starting line of, um, of the Olympic, of the Olympic games. So I think do, do you, that startups are you, like that somewhere, you, you know, there's potential, do you, do you, but you, you don't fat, you don't fixate on, oh my God, like we're building to this, you know, billion user based company. I don't think, I think Mark would, I, I'm sure he's been on record saying he did not see that completely. Do you either of you look back at that and wish that you would have been able to stay involved because of the impact it's had? Or is it just kind of a chapter that's gone by and it's like, okay, that is what it is? So I think that um, if you look at the core of the the Facebook and the impact of the company as a whole, at its core, it's a social network. It has been a social network from day one. And I think that the early piece in our early involvement of that really the three months where, you know, the genesis of, hey, people's emails are now their identity. They're now at a point where they're willing to share their identities online. And there's a social network that starts at a university level and can sort of scale and build out beyond that. That started um, at the beginning, and that core concept really hasn't changed. In terms of our involvement with the company, in, in many ways, we, you know, it allowed us to take this detour into rowing for for another 10 years um, and go to the Olympics, which um, was an experience of a lifetime, something that I personally, and I don't think either one of us would 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 trade or, or not have. So that's sort of one of the really interesting silver linings of this whole thing is that we got to pursue our athletic dreams probably a lot longer than if we had stayed um, involved with the company and pursued that in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and I think we're, we're fortunate enough to we think what we're working on today uh, has has as much potential. Um, we think that the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoin, Ethereum, these ideas are so big. They uh, can potentially re-architect the entire internet as we know it. And we feel really fortunate to be working in this space. I think that Facebook has had a tremendous impact, but that has been pretty much in a large part realized and there's a lot more impact to be made and there's a lot of potential um probably greater strides to be made in different areas and i think that um digital currency is that area um globally i think the potential to actually change life 
in, in, in a nutshell, it, it is the ultimate social network in a, in a way. Money is the ultimate social network. And so sure, connecting with people and sharing pictures is really important, but also uh, connecting the world economically and financially um, might actually be more important. And so we are super um, excited to be doing what we're doing now and helping shape that future. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to go to harrys.com slash the hive, and we're going to check out the deal that our sponsor, Harry's, is offering our listener today. I should tell you that I've become an avid fan of Harry's razors. They're so clean and beautifully designed. They're like the apple of razors, but without the prices, which is, of course, one of the many things that makes Harry's so amazing. The razors feel incredible. The foam gel smells so fantastic, I actually contemplated eating some the other day. And best of all, when you go to harrys.com slash the hive, you get all of this for free. That's because Harry's is offering listeners of this podcast a free trial set of their razors at harrys.com slash the hive. What does that even mean? Well, as I look at the website, it's a $13 value, completely for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping. The kit you'll get in the mail includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with lubricated strip, that scrumptious, yummy, tasty lathering gel I mentioned before, and a travel blade cover. Once again, just go to harrys.com slash the hive to get your free $13 kit today. You'll absolutely love it as much as I do, I promise you. Are you guys involved in any of the other entrepreneurial things right now, or is it just are you just focused on the Bitcoin stuff? So we're so we started Gemini. Gemini.com is our um, Bitcoin and Ether exchange. We're headquartered in in New York, and we started that. Um, we started building that about three years ago and putting together the initial team. We didn't launch until October of 2015 because it took us a year and a half to get our trust license um, from the New York Department of Financial Services. So we are a trust company, basically a, uh, a bank-like organization. Um, and we've been building that for the better part of the past three years. And so when we first left rowing in, in 2012, we, were, we weren't sure exactly. We always knew we kind of wanted to build something and, and start something again, but we didn't have an immediate idea or thought right then and there. So we, we said, you know, why don't we try investing in a bunch of different companies, meet lots of entrepreneurs, see lots of ideas, kind of get a big scan of, of the, the um, environment and what's going on. And then as we got more and more into Bitcoin and then decided to say, hey, let's, let's build a, uh, a piece of infrastructure in this ecosystem, we've slowly migrated our time to now where we're probably 100% Gemini for the most part, though we still do venture investing, um, but on a less intensive scale, at least for our schedule, we brought on a partner to help us with that. Right. So we we are investors through our um, fund, Winklevoss Capital. And then as Cameron mentioned, we we were always, in some ways, that was a way to become entrepreneurs again, but just to understand and identify what that would be. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we we discovered Bitcoin on a beach in Ibiza and started buying it and learning about it. And then what became this really cool, you know, thing started sucking us in and now is everything. It's everything we do all day. And we have um, a team that helps us um, run Winklevoss Capital and still do angel investments in tech companies. But we are, uh, we've very much shifted from investors to entrepreneurs these days. What was the what was the co- the price of a bitcoin when when you first bought it? It was in the single uh, 
digits dollars so something like seven or eight dollars a bitcoin and today it's around 2500 a bitcoin that's correct and do you buy other currencies too like ethereum and and other things or ripple and all those other ones or is it mainly bitcoin focused we we um have invested a material amount in in uh or we did invest a material amount in ether um a few years back so bitcoin and ether are we're the most bullish about those two um there's definitely some really interesting other stuff projects out there and also projects coming um in the future um there is um so we're we're always looking but right now bitcoin and ether capture about 90 percent of the entire market cap of every single cryptocurrency in existence so those are really the big two um but there there very well be other substantial large ones um down the road so we'll just keep keep having an eye out again um also gemini is very much a picks and shovels infrastructure company it's not wedded to whether bitcoin succeeds or not or ether we personally are are invested but uh gemini can it's a digital asset exchange so you know it's more of um it's kind of like betting on the racetrack and like not really trying to pick a horse and if bitcoin succeeds great but really it's it's um we can support um the buying and selling and storing of of many cryptocurrencies um all right so uh just a last couple of questions and and then we'll let you go um one question I have is if you um if you could imagine you know what you you know you you're you just were talking about how you think bitcoin and all these things are going to change the way the world works more so than 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 social media or anything has if you could imagine what the world looks like 10 years from now what what do you think it's like what's a like a day in the life with these kinds of technologies you've been talking about so you probably don't need a wallet anymore. So you can go just throw that out, put that in the garbage can. Um, everything's on your phone. It's probably pretty obvious. But I think the the thing that cryptocurrencies enable are transactions that the current financial legacy system cannot uh, support or contemplate. So if you're picked up by your self-driving car, you, you can't pay... Um, the self-driving cars can't get bank accounts at Wells Fargo. They could plug into protocols. They actually might be able to get bank accounts at Wells Fargo. <laughs> Maybe not uh, JP Morgan. Um, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> overall, um, they'll plug into protocols and they can actually, so you can get into that car. Um, you can obviously pay it with cryptocurrency, but that car can also um, pay other cars potentially to move out of the way and in case you're in a rush. Um, it can obviously pay for space on the road. It can pay for speed, and um, and certainly the IoT and the, the sort of the the um, all of these interconnected things now have a way to transact computer to computer, machine to machine. So if it doesn't take a lot of imagination to recognize, like, wow, if if these transactions, which before took like hours or days, now happen. Um, almost instantly um, and micropayments things fractions of pennies can be actually be trans transacted um, that opens up a whole new vista of trade you can't send a micropayment over the internet and outside of eight or ten larger um, more established 
countries, even things like credit cards don't work. Um, but, what, so, but what what do you do with a what 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 am I going to buy with a fraction of a penny as a micropayment? What what is that going to afford me? Well, it may be um, it may be something <clears throat> like um, like we said, you can buy certain things like um, road space or transact with cars or buy. It's hard for me to know exactly what that is, but um, maybe you want to buy a digital good from someone that doesn't really cost, you know, cost a fraction of a penny. But but I would just add that a microtransaction um, by definition and by Visa's definition is $17 or less. Sending a quarter through the internet is not um, feasible with the current infrastructure. So right. for example, I might be willing to pay 25 cents to listen to this podcast. Or but, a fraction of a penny. Or a fraction, <laughs> probably 25 cents. Um, but come on, uh, guys, at least seventeen dollars. <laughs> but we can't do that without sort of pricing it in a way. Well, if you you know here's seventeen dollars and you get um, you know ten free podcast subscriptions, you can't really build break it down into a la carte system. And in other parts of the world where that twenty five cents you know is is much more material, you can't get that type of aid out there. For example, disaster relief or whatever it might be. So, I mean, if you think of the there's billions of people who are connected. They have some form of an internet connection, whether it's a, a smartphone or some kind of connectivity, and are not actually in the financial system. They don't have a bank account, and they have no means to actually open a bank account. But with connectivity and digital assets, um, and it may not be Bitcoin necessarily in 10 years, it may not be Ether, it might be something else. But with the ability to have a mobile wallet that holds digital assets on your phone, we've all of a sudden created an ability for billions more people to be connected and included in the financial system. And if you look at like most of the, you know, credit cards are in, are only in, um, a, a, you know, a fraction of the countries in the world. Um, and, and in our day-to-day -day life, we're not waking up in the middle of the night and saying, gee, I really wish I had a better way to buy that cup of coffee. Um, the, the impact of Bitcoin and these assets in our world may be, have a different impact in the sense than what they have in the developed world, developing world, and and I think that if you look at the the internet, it's it's sort of ironic. We have all this connectivity; people are connected, and yet the infrastructure of payments and banking, we haven't figured that well, part the, out. The, the joke is the fastest way to get money from New York to London is actually jump on a plane with a bag of cash, because if you send out a wire on Friday and there's a bank holiday on Monday, it's probably getting there on on Wednesday. Imagine imagine if your email. Um, shut down over the weekend, you know, or it was only open from nine to five. Now we might get some sanity back, but um, nobody would kind of expect that. But also back to the fraction, the the why that might be important is that digital currencies and these protocols uh, might change the way um, companies or networks even look. So there are people who talk about, let's say, you know a lot about Twitter. I know you wrote a a, a book on on the matter and. I'm sure it was a bestseller. Um, and thank they're talking you, about, you. you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it didn't require a micro payment. Yeah, I'm plugging you on your own show. Um, <clears throat> Appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, but people talk about building a decentralized Twitter where it's not just owned by a few people and all the data is siloed and sits on top of um, you know the internet protocols. But actually the... The, the network's owned by the people who use it. And so if you were someone who used Twitter a lot and made, did a lot of tweets, you would get paid in 
Twitter coin. And you would accumulate or accrue value based on how much you use the service, how much people liked your content. And all of a sudden, the the values accruing to the people who buy in and use the network and not just uh, to a few people who own the network and the traditional model. And I think that is is very interesting. And that's very much the movement with these decentralized protocols is is that right now the internet is basically owned by five companies. It's got you've got Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, um, and maybe one or two others that sit on top of it. And it's very much a centralized um, situation, whereas the internet was always imagined to be a peer-to-peer um, network. Now with the invention of these um, protocols, which people refer to as fat protocols, the value is actually accruing at the protocol layer. So the internet protocols of TCP IP, um, no, there's no value, there's no token there. But um, in the networks of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the value actually accrues to the people who buy into the networks, who buy Bitcoin, who buy Ether. It. It's very hard yeah. to uh, extract value at the application layer, which is completely opposite of the way um, the the current uh, landscape is today. So. With these tokens um, comes all of these possibilities, like you know, paying a, a Twitter Power user for actually the value, as opposed to right now, all you get is a the service for free, and the idea is that you should get um, potentially more if you use it more, and it shouldn't just go to the hands of a few people. So I think the TLDR there is that um, in the developing world, it's it's very likely that the implications have. Um, huge, huge um, impact on financial inclusion into the financial system, which currently doesn't exist or not um, in a great way. And then I think probably for um, you know the internet and and sort of the developed world, it, it the implications are potentially on how you know rearchitecting the net- network, where your data is not just owned in like five big silos on the internet, where all the value accrues to the company. But potentially, um, you know, you you take ownership of your data, um, and it's in a much more decentralized fashion. Um, right now, the way the the internet's basically set up is these silos own your data, and when you have to go and and sort of say who you are and identify yourself, you have to give all your information over, and you have no real control of that. And it gets even worse when people follow you around the internet and show you ads based on the data that you had to give for free and it's sort of all backwards um and i think people are going to have you know privacy is going to be re-architected quite a bit so i have one last question which is a question i ask everyone on the show um Uh uh-oh and what's that i said uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh um it's usually uh uh uh, you guys are how old are you you're both in your mid-30s right that's correct yeah um the question is usually um uh if you could go back in time 20 years and give your youngest self some advice, what would it be? Uh, but since you're in your mid-30s, let's do 10 years. So if you could go back in time 10 years and give yourself some, some advice, what would it be? Mm. Um, Don't all speak up at once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's uh, a great question. Um, I mean, I think there's, I think importantly when I've, I've thought about that question before and not that long ago before there, there aren't huge regrets that I, that I have. Um, and I don't want to speak for Cameron here, but I'm very happy with the choices I've made and and the things we've done and how we've done them. 
there's always room for improvement. Um, there's always things that, you know, to, that we can learn from mistakes or, or whatnot. Um, but there isn't this huge, oh, you should have like quit rowing at, you know, much earlier, or you should have, you know, lived abroad for a couple of years and, you know, moved and done the Peace Corps or something. There isn't that like huge, like, uh, should have kind of done thing. Um, but I think just in general, it would probably be the things the, the same things I tell myself now, which are, um, you know, be happy, have fun, you know, always have fun doing what you're doing. Uh, don't worry too much kind of thing. Have, have perspective, um, understand what's, what's, what's important. Like we talked about relationships before and, and teamwork and recognize, you know, as the older you get that, um, that little like fight that you had or were about to have is just meaningless. Um, we don't have uh, a lot of time on this earth. We, it's the only thing we have is time. You know, if we think we have money, we actually ultimately have time because you're not taking your money with you when you no longer have time and you're, you're no longer here. Um, so I think those are huge things sort of be present. Um, that is like, the key right to happiness if you sort of look at the eastern philosophies and it's very easy to um not be in the moment especially with the social media we live with in the worlds and the connected worlds we live today um and i'm sure we're probably part to blame for that um but i think um yeah like being happy always doing things like we sort of joke about um you know, it should be like a, a very positive feeling about everything you do. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing all the talking here. So maybe Cameron yeah. has some more advice. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, I agree that, that a lot of the things that I focus on today, I wish I'd probably fo- continued to focus on earlier um, and building in like non-negotiable time for your passion and hobbies. So we were talking about earlier how Tyler's gotten um, back into the, we, we both played piano growing up, but Tyler's recently gotten back into it. Um, and I've gotten back into the guitar after um, a couple of years sort of off. Um, and I remember getting um, this contact for, for the, the guitar teacher that I'm currently working with. And I sat on it for a year. And then one day I was like, this, like, I, I, I actually have the time. In, in the mentality of sitting on it, it's like, oh, I'm going to wait for the right time when everything's perfect or to do it and we just convince ourselves that we have to procrastinate yeah and that we don't have the time and then i sort of said wait a second of course you have the time you have that you can you can do an hour a week and you can practice 30 to 60 minutes a day um which i don't really do um but i try to do that's at least the goal and um and then i finally just moved on it um and and a year in i'm i you know i it's it's a huge passion for me and tyler's um, picked up the piano again and, and creating sort of that, those non-negotiable things. Um, and, and more recently I have turned off all the push notifications on apps on my phone and it is such a different experience. I no longer have the, the phone constantly like sucking me in. And so I'd say probably I was, if anything, too connected over the past year, 10 years. And, and I've actually done the same exact thing. It is incredibly yeah. liberating. <laughs> and, and now I go into the phone when on my terms, on my time, when I'm yeah. willing and ready to do it, as opposed to it constantly sucking me in and pulling me in and creating, and you get competitive with those little red circles. You're like, Oh, I've got to clear out my email, got to clear out all these alerts. And then like an hour later, they're all back. And so 
Yep. Those types of uh, things of like disconnecting better, batching work and, and really focusing on the critical few things of like what is critical to what I'm doing. Right. And look, I think historically we, we've probably, that's been probably one of our biggest strengths is back in high school saying, look, I really want to make the junior national team in rowing. And that's all I really care about. And I'm, I'm going to do everything I can do until I hit that mark. And then picking the next mark, which is I'm going to make the varsity um, rowing team at Harvard. And, and not only am I going to make it, but I really want to win a national championship. And everything goes towards that. Every single minute of the day is going towards that. So I think historically we've been pretty good at like prioritizing. But as you get older, like life gets, you know, you get more. I mean, we're in 65 companies investing in 65 companies. We have 40 people working at Gemini. We're more busy than we ever have been. And yet I'm finding more and more time for myself to like focus on like building skills and hobbies and passions. So I'd say if I could have started that earlier and, and kind of continue to build in that non-negotiable time and those habits, that's probably what I'd say to myself. I think that I, I, I would completely agree with you. I, I will add one thing that I, <clears throat> after having this conversation with you, that I would have done differently a few years ago is I probably would have tried to invest in Bitcoin when it was at like a <laughs> penny and then uh, I'd, be, I'd be off living on a beach in Ibiza somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, uh, good luck with Gemini and all of your other pursuits. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thanks for having Appreciate us. Appreciate it. Thank you. A lot of fun. Yep. Thank you to my guests, Tyler and Cameron Winkleboss. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Harry's. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.